Hello, hello, and welcome to the New Economy Network Australia, NINA, podcast. My name is Anna Garnock, and I am grateful to interview folks involved with NINA, Australia's largest multi-sectoral network of innovators, changemakers, and advocates working for an ecologically just and socially sound economy. Today, we will be interviewing Louise Crabtree-Hayes. Louise is an Associate Professor at the Institute of Culture and Society at the Western Sydney University. Louise's research focuses on social, ecological and economic sustainability of community-driven housing developments in Australia. She also focuses on the uptake of housing innovation in practice and policy, on complex adaptive systems theory in urban contexts, and on the interfaces between sustainability, property rights, institutional design and democracy. So I'm super excited to talk to you today, Louise. Thank you so much for joining me and good afternoon. Hi, Anna. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. We'll jump straight in. So I'm curious to hear a bit about your work. Can you please tell us about your current role and the things that you're working on at the moment? Sure, sure. So uh, my work, uh, as you said, is at the uni and I work across a number of research projects. And what I've currently got on is um, a couple of major projects, one looking at the values that are generated by housing cooperatives and looking at that in terms of a broad reading of social value. Um, And that's working across New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia and WA uh, with a team of two other unis. And I've also um, for a few years now been driving the formation of a space called uh, Maldonyonura, which is uh, working together side by side, a Wiradjuri name that was gifted by Auntie Helen Riley, which is a transformation hub in Lithgow. So looking at what does a thriving future look like in a regional area that has a lot of legacy industries that are going through uh, change uh, and how do you sort of orient things and align things to enable uh, a thriving future to come through in that context. Um, I've also been involved in the planetary health work that's going on in the Blue Mountains with the council there that's looking at, well, what does that mean for them in a in a World Heritage area uh, to actually think about the planning and, and management of their region and their community in that context? And the really nice thing about those two is they're adjacent local government areas. So we're actually able to look at these issues around transition and transformation uh, into adjacent but very different contexts and working with council and community and industry and all of the stakeholders uh, who are interested in working towards those futures. Incredible. And what was it that kind of planted the seed for you along this journey of academia into this world specifically? Oh, goodness. Now, there's a good question. Uh, it's not a, there's not a, oh gee, there's not a single point. It's a bit of an origin story. So I actually started out studying to be a vet. So I started out, went to an agricultural high school, grew up on a lot of farms. This is going further and further back. My grandpappy, sorry, no, my, so... <laughs> Went to an agricultural high school, started out studying to be a vet. And the further I got into that, the more I realised that a lot of the issues that were being presented as issues to do with health or medicine in non-human species was actually about how humans treat those species. And so I walked away from that after about three and a half years. And while I was in that degree, I took time out between the third and fourth years and did a lot of travel, travelled around 
Queensland, the Northern Territory, South Australia, living in the back of a very old Toyota. And a few things happened when I got out into different landscapes. Yeah, I was born in England, came here when we were when I was six, but getting out into desert country in particular, things started changing. I don't I don't know in what way or how, but part of me went, gee, I'm I'm just not doing what I need to be doing. And it was something about the way that being, I don't know, in these spaces where I don't know, there's like an, an awareness that the landscape is aware that you're there. You know, it's the only way I can describe it. And came back into Sydney and started my vet degree again in fourth year and was like, no, this really isn't, these two things don't fit together. And so uh, I was talking to a mate about it who was in vet and he was like, oh, you should go to this conference. And it was the Student Science and Sustainability Conference in about 1994, I think. And I was like, what the hell is sustainability? And I went to, <laughs> I went to that and it was like, ah, these are my people because it was looking at everything between the intersections of how we perceive ourselves in the world, relationships to country, relationships to the non-human, the systems and the, the processes that we build on that basis, as well as a good healthy dose of activism and things that were getting triggered by the construction of the motorway immediately adjacent to the campus that was sort of percolating at the time. I was like, oh, this feels like this is where I need to be doing things. And so I gradually moved my way through a raft of undergraduate subjects in conservation biology and ecology and biostatistics and you know, climate science and you name it. I just kind of did a went the smorgasbord on science units and wound up in human geography because that was looking fundamentally at the relationship between people and place. And so for my honours thesis, I was looking at systems of urban food provision and specifically how urban food gardens and community gardens are enabled or not by the context within which they find themselves and how they persist across change and what enables them or doesn't. And what really came through in that was the fundamental role that financialization of land plays in cutting across a lot of what we might do to actually thrive in place and to enable the non-human to thrive in place. And yeah, I consequently wound up spending far more of my time on issues to do with property than I ever thought would <laughs> be the case and realised I think that academia gave me a way to be shaping be shaping those narratives, be shaping the way that we think about land and, and think about ourselves in place and also to get more people thinking about it. Like this isn't, oh, I can carry all of this and boy, have I got the answers. It's like, no, we need all hands on deck. So the more I can get younger generations of people thinking oh gee well how do we do it you know it's like it's it's disseminating that knowledge and that concern and also allowing spaces where new thinking can come through and and really just build that uh that critical mass of knowledge and thinking and giving things the space to percolate up 
So there's sort of two aspects to it, I guess. One is, you know, me as an academic being able to work on particular things and go and pro- provide the evidence base for things and, and work on the things that I can work on. Um, but the the bigger role I see is using academia or understanding it as a, as a, as a lever and a point of inf- intervention. So, you know, you talked about, well, mentioned the fact that I work on complex adaptive systems. One of the main sort of issues there is identifying points to intervene and, and where you can enable system change. So I'm, I'm sort of using academia as a bit of a lever in terms of, well, it provides an avenue to train up you know, and, and encourage future generations of thinkers, but it also enables things like working with stakeholders to get things like the Lithgow hub on the ground and to examine planetary health in the Blue Mountains, which are these very hybrid things where the university is is involved and there are academics involved, but it's in there with multiple um, stakeholders and, and community and, and um, traditional owners and, and people saying, well, what needs to happen in this place and what are the resources we can tap into and what are the, the channels of, of thinking and collaboration that can help this to happen? So, yeah, that was a very long answer to <laughs> what you would think would be a simple question, but, you know, there's a few decades to cover off on there. So, <laughs> I loved it. It was a journey and as such a shift in your trajectory from vet science into ecology and the bigger picture, the systems at play. Uh, Just quickly, did you ever finish that fourth year vet side degree? No, no, it's a five-year degree. So, yeah, so I I bailed 18 months before completion and went over to Macquarie Uni. And and because of how these things work, they, they sort of give you advanced standing for prior study. And because I'd had like three and a half years in in what's called a life science degree, I got this ridiculous amount of advanced standing. And then I went, as I said, you know, and did the smorgasbord on all of the, the other sciences that I thought were relevant. So I wound up with a, a degree in science with some ludicrous overqualification in terms of the amount of units that I'd still so I've got like, the, you know, it's it's kind of crazy, but it it was just that process of going. No, I haven't I haven't quite got the the suite of what I think I need to do this yet. So I yeah, but I, I got there in the end. <laughs> yes, <laughs> sounds like you've got at least a double degrees worth of study <laughs> for the price of an undergrad for one degree. But you followed your heart and your instinct and it sounds like, yeah, the travels and that conference really steered you in this different, exciting direction. And you kind of alluded to systems at play, financial, that impact our place. And I'm wanting to hear from you exactly what you see as problematic or even wrong with our current economic system here in Australia, but also globally, and why you think we need to build a new well-being-based economy. Yeah, yeah. My take on it comes very much in from that land point of view and the relationship to place. And so, yeah, from my sort of placing within that, the biggest issue I see is the commodification of land and particularly in the context of unceded sovereign lands on the Australian continent, the transposition of a system of enclosure from England, which 
wreaked havoc on the commons and on fairly robust uh, systems that combined the social and the ecological in terms of you know, sustainable grazing practices and that were community-based and all of those things. Firstly, the enclosure of those commons and then the transposition of that land logic into this continent sets up the terrain for exploitative and extractive practices that do not underpin thriving arrangements of living, uh, human or non-human. So my take on it is that that land economy, that that financialization, that enclosure, that commodification of land is very hard to not have lead to destructive practice, even where we see attempts made like carbon sequestration markets and biodiversity offsets, they still are too readily open to gaming. They're too readily open to practices that don't align with regenerative systems. And yeah, and I know there's an argument that's like, yes, well, we just need to refine them. We just need to refine them. But I think that there's an inherently problematic logic bound up in that that says, well, you can enclose this, you can privatise it, and so long as you just set all the settings right, you can somehow magically get growth and restoration at the same time. Maybe we can, but evidence to date is sketchy at best. So, and I think there's something inherently questionable about viewing land as a speculative commodity. I think it, it's it's something that doesn't, I think, and it gets back into, you know, there's economic arguments around use value versus exchange value, for example. And, and that's why I spend a lot of time working on community land trusts, because they try to look at, well, okay, what's actually bundled up in the generation of value on land? And what of that should be tradable and what bits of it shouldn't be tradable? And for me, that's a far more nuanced read of how we occupy place and what things shouldn't be seen as commodities and shouldn't be tradable. And, you know, you can separate that between what's been a a legacy or a public investment here and what's the individual or the corporation brought to this situation. So you can think about ways to split out you know, types of value and you hold some out of the market and you let a market operate in another, you know, and part of that. And you can think about how you construct that market. But I think I think we need to get more nuanced and less scared of talking about ways in which to decommodify aspects of the economy and to think about well, what is a social economy? What's an ecological economy? These other readings of it that, you know, draw more on its, its sort of lineage in terms of you know thinking about it more as management of a, of a lived space rather than you know extraction and speculation and the expectation of growth and all of those things that we know are creating mischief so yeah it's it's getting back in terms of you know the origin of the word economy to be thinking about it more in terms of its understanding of yeah, what it means to be in place and how we how we manage that as a species and the and the conversations we have around it rather than assuming that some kind of pro-growth extractive private market economy is inevitable and and unproblematic uh, we can have far more intelligent conversations around it I think that are more aligned to the sorts of outcomes that we need to see in terms of social and ecological justice. 
100%. And if so, if this extractivist, exploitivist, commodifying approach that we have or founded in growth based economics is so destructive, you started talking about, yeah, different models that encompass social well-being, ecological well-being in our economy. I'd love for you to expand on that of what you could see as what a well-being economy would look like. Hmm. Well, it's getting it's getting to the outer limits of my knowledge base and that's where I tend to hand over to a, a dear colleague that I work with on this <laughs> who's an ecological economist, uh, Neil Perry. But I think... For me, what it flags is a focus on ideas around stewardship and procedure. So it takes it into, it. Ha, well, for me, it has to take it into a dialogical space and a collaborative space where it's like, okay, we don't actually know what it's going to look like in this context, but we need to start to have the conversation and we need to then have the tools once we've thought about what it needs to happen here as part of that we then need to have the tools to go okay well if we've identified that we want to focus on these particular things what are the things that we can use in order to achieve that so what particular do we need to be looking at cooperatives or is a non-profit limited by company limited by guarantee going to serve us well do we want to set up this do we want to do that i think the tools and that's i guess where again For example, the work that I've been doing on the community land trusts focuses more on process than structure. It's more about how do you undertake a process to work out what you need to be, not what's the tool or what's the model. Because as soon as you start asserting a singular thing, you're probably going to get it wrong because there'll be something you haven't thought about. And so it's, and I think that's part of what we're seeing with this slip or this sort of transition between modernity and whatever comes next is less, oh, we know what the thing is. We know what the structure is. We know what the narrative is. And we'll go do that. We'll go replicate that into, well, actually, we don't know. <laughs> but what we've got to do is what we, you know, is start up a process within which we can be having that conversation and we know the sorts of things that we can use to start to achieve the sorts of aims that we've said we'd like to achieve. But we need to also be flexible and reflexive about it. So it's a, it's, you know, and you hear language around slowness and stickiness and and things that are place bound and that, you know, need to be able to adapt over time and, and be able to understand what's happening and change accordingly without losing sight of, well, you know, we said we wanted to achieve these things. Are those still the best things for us to achieve? So it's, I guess it, and that's where that sort of, that sort of hybrid between procedure and stewardship comes through because it's like, okay, well, we, we've, we've identified who we are uh, in terms of, you know, the, the, the issues that we're focused on and this is our process for keeping ourselves in an honest and open dialogue about those things and the tools that we're using to achieve them and whether we think we're achieving them or not. So it's that sort of, yeah, that framing of a commitment to a process and then the iterative nature of that process because the the tools may well change and the alignment and arrangement of those activities may change and that and that, again this is all systems theory this is all like how do you how do you live through change how do you live through transition and how do you sit with it and you know there's 
people writing wonderful stuff about the sort of balancing between action and uncertainty. And I've been very hung up on uh, Bayo Akamalafe's work at the moment around yeah, working into the cracks and this beautiful sort of openness to uncertainty without abandoning hope or you know, not you know, thinking you can't commit to anything. So, and I think that's the sort of space for me that helps to start to th- generate the ground in which a wellbeing economy can can take root. Yeah, great. I'll have to get the names of these people at the end. So perfect segue into Nina. Uh, what motivated you to connect with Nina, Louise? Oh, jeepers. Um, you know, I can't remember. <laughs> I probably saw Michelle speak at something. Maybe Michelle's got a better answer on that than me. But I, th- oh, yeah, no, it's, it's, I'm not entirely sure, but I, it's definitely been a convergence around thinking about decommodified property forms and decommodified housing as part of what a new economy looks like and as a central place in which we ground ourselves because for me you can't have a new economy or any form of economy that's out there like it's it's not separate to where we live it's not separate to our homes you know it's intimately bound up in how we think of the world and how we live in the world yeah so the fact that nina has been looking at this this broader conceptualization of economic change and the, the the sort of world that we want to be in it was a, a natural fit in terms of the work that I do and the work that Nina does yeah so I think it was probably just one of those inevitable collisions <laughs> I feel like Michelle has a way of um colliding with many people <laughs> <laughs> and yeah it is very exciting work what has been your involvement so far with Nina I've been involved in a lot of the short courses and doing guest spots on things and helping with the housing week and speaking on a few things together, involvement with the Regenerative Songlines Network. So, yeah, just increasingly being part of the the housing and, and human habitat sort of hub within it. So, yeah, it's sort of many and varied, but like, you know, usually speaking within the housing space, but also speaking on some of those broader sort of issues around regeneration and and particularly in the context of being on country and being on in unceded territory and what it means to actually you know, be at this moment and go forward in a way that, you know, makes sense in that context and can help to enable regeneration in the history, you know, in the context of a still colonial continent and how we go forward from there. So, yeah. Many and varied things. Hmm. And I wonder, in terms of how we go forward from there, how would you like Nina to go forward from here? And I guess, you know, noting those hats that you've got on, seeing the process being really fundamental versus the outcome and the structure. Yeah, what would you like to see Nina doing now and into the future? Oh, just more of what it's doing. <laughs> I think I really, I'm really excited by the Green Prince sort of evolution and seeing what that can do. And that's something that we're engaging in uh, in Lithgow and looking at because it, and and the reason I like it is because it speaks to that that sort of 
space between you know, stewardship and process. So bringing you know, people together in a place to talk about, well, what does this place need? What does this place want? And, and what can it do? And how do we get there? And, and building out that pathway in a very sort of practical sense, uh, which is you know, what we've sort of engaged in, in in Lithgow and with the planetary health work. So I think looking at how that can continue to evolve and particularly in the context of these varying activities and collaborations that are starting to happen around how we go forward uh, in a, you know, a I don't, I don't even know if I'd say recovering colony yet, but in the context of colonialism and colonisation and, you know, the various discussions and, and movements that are happening around truth-telling, you know, treaty-making and the issue of a voice. And, you know, as we've seen with the sort of discussions that are happening around that at multiple levels and, and discussions around, well, which order do you do them in and, and all of those things – we're seeing this sort of bubbling up of local approaches to that and um, usually starting with truth-telling and then progressing to treaty-making. And so the more that things like Nina can be involved in those conversations and those spaces in terms of, as we go on, in terms of well, what needs to happen now and what do we, you know, how do we talk about reparation and, and reconciliation and healing and in really real ways you know I think people are so over the tokenism and the lip service you know you know a government that gets up and says sorry and doesn't stop the intervention you know like these things that just break people's hearts repeatedly like how do we stop that (laughs) and actually weave our understandings of economy into place in ways that are actually you know, grounded, absolutely grounded in country and that our country and that heal country and that, you know, uh, and this is me as a non-Aboriginal person, you know, not remotely saying that I have the capacity to do that, but, you know, it's it's how to actually genuinely make space for First Peoples to be front and centre in that and in ways that, that you know, start to build the sort of future in which country and and all of country's inhabitants can thrive. So, yeah, no, small stuff, you know, no biggie. <laughs> Just the minor tasks, really. <laughs> <laughs> So just on that, noting that I as well am not Aboriginal and by no means can either of us speak as if we're experts or have an overly important opinion on this, but I guess being somebody who's quite involved in this space as you are and very much considering First Nations people and all of the work that you do, especially around land uh, and sovereignty over land and where land is ceded, what is, or unceded, what are your views on the Uluru Statement of the Heart and the people's voice? Because I know that there is a lot of conversation around it, how it's a sign of progress but also the worry that it could be tokenistic and taking away from things like treaty. What are your thoughts on that at the moment? Yeah, look, well, I'm, I'm basically, I'm following a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander folk on social media and just watching what that conversation is. And yeah, because I, I, and I, I think that, the question around what comes first, I, I, I have an inherent 
fear about writing people into a constitution that, that asserts the power of a colonial state. I, I, and I know that that's a concern uh, in community uh, in amongst you know, some of the sort of your leading Aboriginal thinkers in this space saying, well, no, that that's that erases the basis on which to make treaty. It erases sovereignty. If you're written into a constitution that's of a colonial power, then that fundamentally erases sovereignty. And I think that's a pretty compelling argument. And yeah, but I mean, I, I it's an issue that I'm sort of just watching on social media in terms of, I mean, I personally, I, I'm not entirely convinced that people who aren't First Nations, I don't really know whether we should even get a vote on this, to be honest. I, I, I kind of feel like, you know, ask the landlord if you can have more rights. Like, you know, it, it just feels a little bit like it's the wrong way to be going about things. Yeah, and I know there's been challenge around the Uluru Statement and and how representative that is in the process. And, and I know people walked out and there's been, con you know, asks even for the the Uluru name to be taken off because proper consultation didn't occur around the use of the name and so I again I just think that this or these things aren't I, I don't think they should be subject to non-aboriginal pressures or aspirations or obligations I I think that I don't know. I, I don't think it should be up to whiteies and, and other non-Aboriginal people to be going, oh, we think it's great. No, and it needs to happen really quickly. Um, you know, I yeah. I'm so I'm I'm doing a whole bunch of stepping back and watching and listening to what people from community are saying and and having a big old think about that because I yeah, I think this is something that it's really easy to get wrong and lock things in out of some sort of sense of urgency that need more time and that could you know create problems i under I, I think that desire that sense of urgency needs to be driven into something that's procedural and that's maybe about you know some people not being part of the conversation because you know they maybe they shouldn't and i think that's a, it's a i don't know i don't know if colonizing mindsets are really good at understanding that sometimes you have to translate a sense of importance into something that's slow. There seems to be this hang up with, well, if it's important, we've got to do it quickly. It's like, no, you know, sometimes when things are important, you've got to do them real slow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So again, God, I'm great with the short answers. <laughs> I love your long answers. The Stephen Rush might also be coming from it being a promised yeah, a promise from the from the government within a certain time period if they are elected, and sure enough, they are. So it's also maybe a little bit for their upholding their reputation versus actually integrity in the process itself. Yeah, ex yeah, exactly. Which to me sounds like the wrong imperative. Like that. That's you know. That sounds like an ALP problem. It doesn't sound like something that should be driving something this significant. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's a really interesting, complex space. And, but I think the more and more and more voices we get heard who are First Nations people, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islanders, and the less of us non Aboriginal folks clouding the conversation, the better. Yeah. 
yeah. So I'm just going to end with five quick questions. Um, but again, if you take your time with them, that's fine too. <laughs> I'll try to be quick. Um, <laughs> see how you go. All right. So they're just things that come to mind straight off the bat uh, when I ask these questions. Firstly, who is one person that has been an immense source of personal and professional inspiration for you and why? Mm, Richie Howard um, at Macquarie Uni um, because, um, well, firstly, he he um, sang during an undergraduate lecture when I was having a, a <laughs> when I was in one of his classes. So I was like, oh, okay, that's good. Um, but uh, in terms of helping to think through uh, complex and thorny things without rushing to a solution. Um, I think he's been really pivotal in shaping my thinking in that regard and remains a dear colleague and mentor. Yeah, he was one of my PhD supervisors alongside Bob Fagan, who'd probably be one of the other people that I'd list if we had about three hours to go through them all. <laughs> and I think you've also mentioned other folks such as Neil Perry. Was it Boa? Bayo, Bayo Okomolafe. Uh, he's a writer who calls himself, uh, he, he talks about post-activism, which he then also talks about in terms of compost activism, which only works if you're American because then you say compost. Um, but his writing's great um, in terms of just settling into uncertainty. But there's also Deb Bird Rose and uh, a whole bunch of other people, but yeah. If you could re recommend one resource, so book, report, article, documentary, whatever, to listeners that you think is really valuable and somewhat reflects one or maybe multiple principles of what Nina is all about, what resource would it be? Oh, blimey. Um, oh, only one, really? Go through. <laughs> it's nothing to do with Nina. I was going to say Koyana Skatsi. Because that's possibly a point of origin or then maybe Baraka, but they're nothing about it. They are about economics, but they're just big visual and musical journeys. But, yeah, sorry, they're not economic resources. Um, there's all sorts of things. Like there's things that, yeah, no, anyway, let's just stick with the movies because they're great. Yeah. Yeah, great. I'll be honest, I had no idea what they were. So when you said them, they went straight over my head. Can you repeat them? I oh, Kids these days, Koyana Skatsi, which is a, don't ask me how to spell it, it's got a lot of A's in it, but it was a, a big visual essay around the impact. And well, again, it's just one of these visual narrative movies with music. Philip Glass did the soundtrack. Um, and it, it was like a precursor to what then got picked up in a movie called Baraka, uh, lots of A's again. Um, which again was a visual diary, just juxtaposing scenes from around the world with this this evocative musical sort of score. And I think they were actually really pivotal uh, pop culture moments because they were things that people went to the cinema and they looked at this thing and just went, ah, oh. I was going to say something really rude then, but I didn't, um, because it shows you this is what's going on out there. These are the impacts that are happening. It doesn't say anything. Just puts it out there uh, and I think in terms of where Nina's come from and or what Nina's about those for me kind of say a lot more than you know a lot of us say <laughs> in words <laughs> yes, and it sounds powerful getting that visual messaging yes sometimes it is 
it can be more effective than, say, a written article. Well, exactly. I once, yeah. sorry, um, quick diversion. Um, I was once at a conference, uh, academic conference, where a world-leading climatologist who's been involved in the generation of massive supercomputer climate models showing climate change, blah, 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 said that the day after tomorrow was the strongest piece of science communication they'd ever seen in terms of climate change because it got it in front of millions of people suddenly going, oh, heck. And the diagram in that, that oh, it's whoever it is, Dennis Quaid or whoever stands in front of when he's trying to argue with the Senate about we've got to act now, there's a diagram going of the ocean currents and it's pretty blunt and it's a bit simplistic as a as a as a, a model of of the oceanic currents under climate change but that was actually based on the work of world leading climatologists and they were like we could write a thousand papers and never get public understanding to that level um so i absolutely you know think that pop culture has a massive role to play you know the impact of don't look up for example like i think the way we construct narratives and use storytelling to talk about what's possible and and what we can do and to to reflect on what's happening and and think about what's possible i think it's absolutely powerful but i'm rambling again far out sorry <laughs> you're completely forgiven uh <laughs> as a fellow rambler i so agree i loved the movie don't look up i found it hilarious and bleak and engaging all at the same time and i think you're right the science is out there it's now how we communicate it and communicating it to a world that has so much stimuli, literally at the tip of our fingers, 24 hours a day. And so somehow reaching audiences through all the noise is, um, it's an artwork and it, and it can be through comedy. It can be through visuals. It can be through music. It can be through so many different platforms. It can be through articles and books, but it. Yeah, there's, I think, a whole lot of room for creativity there in how we we bring science communication out there. Yeah. How do you, on a personal level, uh, just day-to-day basis, navigate the dilemma of, on the one hand, you deeply understand how our economy centred on infinite growth is clearly harmful. Um, and as such, you know, you've dedicated your life's work to really trying to shift that. Yet on the other hand, your survival depends on being part of this system, this colonised country called Australia. How do you reconcile that? Ha, yeah. And adding adding in decades of watching everything not get paid attention to in terms of, no, we really need to act. No, we really need to act. But that's not true because we are acting. But it's a tricky one. And... Oh, and I've got three kids and for a long time I wasn't going to have kids, you know, particularly when I was reading about climate change in the 1990s and science that was coming out then saying the climate was already changing too fast for certain species to be able to migrate. I then went and had kids and it was, you know, like how how do I bring children into this world? Why do I bring children into this world? But it's like, oh, my goodness, you can't, I, I couldn't fathom living with myself if I was honestly going to be that hopeless you know it's so I guess it's like well I don't know it was partly recklessness and also partly commitment to the future to say no well I am actually going to bring children into this world because I think we can do better and and it's part of being alive in this this wonderful mess (laughs) 
is I think uh, it's a lesson in living with that complexity and and stopping from taking moral high ground with it because we're all compromised and there's no such thing as this perfect human who's going to act in a perfectly ecological way. It's like everything we're doing is ecological. We are deeply messy, entangled, embodied, porous clusters of organisms. You know, we're, we're, these, we're stuff and, you know, we've just got to live with that. And you try and steer it in the ways that you can, you know, if that means that, oh, my God, you know, it's, yeah, I, I, it's, I think it's part of that learning to live with it and learning to be in it. Uh, and there are days when, yeah, I totally want to smash things, you know, like it's like, oh, that's it. I'm just going to go burn everything down because I've had a gut full. And just sitting with that and going, yep, that's because there's a whole bunch of stuff that's really, really, really screwed. Uh, and really awful and yeah you know sometimes it needs rum uh, sometimes it needs bad television sometimes i have to go out and dance yes yay for dancing with rum yeah and then just get up and get back to it so yeah that's that's my tried and true method um of trial and error and it's a whole oh my god there's this whole other part of my life that I haven't even talked about in terms of how I dealt with this stuff when I was younger but blimey we need another hour for that but yeah it's just you know using whatever works really oh look and you can't give me that hook with no follow-through <laughs> can you do a nutshell of your 20s how did you deal with climate anxiety and the climate crisis biodiversity crisis and all the things you're learning about lots of drugs yeah yeah. <laughs> self-medication <laughs> to the wazoo yeah and then when I managed to not kill myself it was like well I better do something about this then because like you know I didn't manage to actually destroy myself despite my best intentions so what am I gonna do now <laughs> better get useful I guess yeah so you have I think you have outdone yourself in becoming useful <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and if you could give one piece of advice to Australian leading politicians, what would it be? <laughs> Pay attention to the Greens or perish. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of the way, dinosaurs. <laughs> the future's coming at you, ready or not. Yeah, that'd be it. And if all of a sudden you miraculously had infinite time, money, resources, imagine to spend just on Nina right now, what would you do? Mm, jeepers. Um, replicate you all over the country, you, us. Uh, just put it and get it everywhere. Um, and also like, oh, yeah, gee, provide spaces where people can actually sit down. Okay, so we're talking infinite, infinite. So, like, take care of all the material needs so that people can then actually sit down and work out, okay, what do we want to do for the future? How do we, like, just build this uh, without feeling like, oh, my God, we've got to do it tomorrow or we're all going to starve or, um, yeah, being driven by all of the, the imperatives that, you know, cut across it, um, take away that sort of stress and enable it to just do the things that enable us to thrive in place with all of our human and non-human um, other beings on this fabulous, fabulous spinning rock that we have. Thank you. That is a perfect way to conclude this chat. Thank you so much, Louise, for yeah joining me today and for contributing to the Nina podcast. If people are interested in learning more about you or your research uh, or the work in general of the Institute, where can they look? 
Um, oh, look, the website for the Institute for Culture and Society is where things live um, and or people can just Google me and flick me emails and things like that. Um, yeah, but thank you so much. It's been so much fun and it's been really great to talk about this stuff. So, yeah, thank you. Uh, well, it's been equal pleasure to listen. So thank you. Cheers. Until next time, take care and keep up your great work. Thanks so much. <laughs> Cheers, Louise. Bye. Bye.